0: Hi, this is Zach Ruskin, and welcome to Radio Book Passage. On our last episode, we spoke with Christopher Jansma, the author of Why We Came to the City, a whimsical but ultimately profound novel about chasing dreams and unexpected loss. Today, we leave Manhattan for the realm of memories, the subject of iconic novelist Joyce Carol Oates' latest work, The Man Without a Shadow. Oates' career has spanned six decades, during which she's left an indelible mark on American literature, in The Man Without a Shadow, Oates tells the story of neuroscientist Margot Sharp and the man who becomes her subject. An individual whose devastated memory renders him unable to store new experiences or recall his own past. It is a taut and fascinating story and another jewel in the crown of Oates' unparalleled career. Book Passage Path to Publishing Coordinator Sam Barry sat down with Oates to discuss her latest work ahead of her event at our Corte Madera store.
1: I'm Sam Barry with Book Passage and I'm here with Joyce Carol Oates. Uh, She's here at Book Passage tonight uh, to present her book The Man Without a Shadow, a novel that she, her most recent novel of Forty, I think, is that right? Uh, you approximately probably, approximately forty. Um I'm gonna read the just I'm just gonna read this biography that is provided by Echo. But you all should go and read Joyce's more extensive biography elsewhere because it's amazing. I'm mean, truly an amazing career. Uh, Joyce Carroll Oates is a recipient of the National Medal of Humanities, the National Book Critics Circle, Ivan Sandroff Lifetime Achievement Award, the National Book Award, and the Penn Mellinwood Award for Excellence in Short Fiction. She has written some of the most enduring fiction of our time, including We Were the Mulvaney's, Blonde, which was nominated for the National Book Award, and the New York Times bestseller, The Accursed. She is the Roger S. Berland Distinguished Professor of the Humanities at Princeton University, and has been a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters since 1978. And quite, I know, it's always hard to sit, listen to yourself be read about like that, but it's um, an amazing biography and, and uh, an amazing career. I, I, I hope it's been fun, or at least some of it's been fun.
2: Well, it's been very challenging and interesting, and each project I do often requires some, some research and some special, um, you know, information, so I keep learning.
1: Is the uh, research more fun than the writing, or are they both fun?
2: Well, research, as John Updack said, is the innocent part of writing. Mm. That's when you're sort of having fun, taking notes. When I was researching my novel, Blonde, which is about the the pre-private life of Marilyn Monroe, I saw all her movies that were available, quite a few movies. Mm -hmm. So that was so wonderful. I saw the movies in chronological order, and I so enjoyed that.
1: Mm-hmm. Her range was actually much bigger than people realize. You're so you
2: know. correct. Her range is much bigger, mm-hmm. but I saw her as a young starlet blossoming in front of my eyes in a sequence of movies, some mm-hmm. of which were quite famous. But because I saw them in the sequence, I saw her, you know, coming into her her maturity and her mm-hmm. her actual comic genius, mm-hmm. and to watch that was was amazing. It's not something that I would ever. Ordinarily have done ever, but except I was writing the novel.
1: Yeah, I, I know, I, I, and so it gives you that joy of going exploring a new world, basically. Yes,
2: like, and, and exploring uh, the interior of the human brain, so to speak, in The Man Without a Shadow.
1: Mm-hmm. The,
2: the research I did for this was just fascinating. My husband, Charlie Gross, is a neuroscientist, and so I would just sort of go into his library. He has <clears throat> a wonderful extensive library of books, of course, on neuroscience, but also in the history of neuroscience and the history of science generally is um, all of Darwin, Mm -hmm. for instance. So I did a lot of wonderful reading, just really learning a lot about neuroscience. You always get to
1: go to college this way. It's great.
2: Absolutely, and I read some new books on the subject and some old books and talked with Charlie. And Charlie read my first draft of my manuscript and had a few suggestions and corrections, and then I did a lot of revision, and then he read the final draft. And so all the science in the novel, supposedly, is is, is accurate.
1: Yes, I mean, a <laughs> book like The Man Without a Shadow, uh, since you're an artist, a novelist, I think you, you're you lucky to have a, a neuroscientist handy, because of course the book deals with, what well, a big part of the book is dealing with the Science of the mind yes. of the brain.
2: Yes, the brain.
1: And um, which uh, I you're closer to it than I am. It feels like we're still, in many ways, in the infancy of that science, or in the early stages.
2: Yes. Well, neuroscience, like all the sciences, is, is very, very difficult.
1: Yep. Yes. People
2: but, people think they like that they want to read. They like to read about the brain, like in a newspaper, but they're reading about it in such a general way. Mm-hmm. The actual neuroscientists are doing extremely minute and f- methodical measurements right. of firing new- neurons, and then they establish graphs and charts and then mm-hmm. statistical and computational. Like all scientists, science it's very difficult. So, in my my novel, is a kind of look into it f- for people who are. Interested and educated, but are not scientists
1: and can you remind me the one of the primary characters is the pronunciation is Elihu or Li- Elihu Elihu Hoops, who is the man without a shadow who described in the title and uh, um, Be uh, and the most studied and most famous amnesiac in history uh, Because he's he's lost really truly lost his memory, but he's still here. He's still aware and he does have as time goes on some very distant uh, and rather spooky uh, yes. early memories yes um, uh, you know th- this is not something that anybody really understood right what had happened to his mind they were just expe- studying I mean in some ways it's it, of course this is nineteen sixty five when he yes did, so we've come a long way, I hope, I hope yes, <laughs> in uh, how we treat patients, but he is yes. actually kind of mistreated, it seems to me, uh, to some degree, or treated something like a guinea guinea pig of sorts.
2: Well, I've, that's interesting that you say that. I don't know how to respond to your remark. I'm not sure if he's mistreated. I really don't know. I mean, as a novelist, I'm presenting the story, right? and some people may think he was exploited. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, but you know, we have to study these people. What else are we going to do? How are we going to learn? I, I guess I don't mean that anybody should have been brought. It's not like it's um It's not a horror novel in that way, uh, uh, you know, in that like um, one flew over the Cuckoo nest kind of thing. But it does seem like um, it's hard for us to remember the humanity of someone like this because they are so. Strange. They're so odd. Their condition is so odd.
2: Well, Margot really falls in love with him.
1: Uh, Margot, the neurologist, a neuroscientist, who meets him. She,
2: she truly falls in love with him.
1: Yes, and it's a love story in a way.
2: And she cares for him in a way that nobody else would. So, that part of his experience, in a way, I think, is quite beautiful. There's one Mm -hmm. person who cares for him. And she would really like to even take him into her home and real and, te- and care for him, because mm-hmm. he's going to be in an assisted living place. And him, he yeah, he he's not no life
1: really. He won't know he, where he is. Yeah.
2: Well, we all suffer diminution of memory as we get older. If we get really, really elderly, Mm -hmm. the short-term memory starts to deteriorate.
1: (laughs) I'm already experiencing it (laughs) myself, so I...
2: (laughs) Well, my students don't remember things either. I mean, basically, Mm. yeah. Teenagers forget things all the time. Right. But our long-term memory can last, you, you can remember your long. Right. You can your long-term memory and, will last a long time. And
1: in some ways, it it become it comes to the fore as people get older. That's right. You begin to remember. Well, in this case, Margot, uh Margot Sharp, who was a neuroscientist and and young uh, and sort of rising through the and at a time when not many women uh, were were really scientists in the sense of being established in the profession alongside their male peers, she. Um, falls in love but she also in a sense is given an opportunity by Eliu to rise in her career because she's got this most amazing case in front Yes. Of her.
2: Yeah, she's in a memory lab so to speak. She's she's working with a distinguished older neuroscientist. Right. She becomes his protege and it's through him that she is initiated into the, the study of the, the amnesia. I found all of it fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I it have is to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's because it also raises questions of what we call, you know, the whole question about consciousness or self. I mean, what, where is self if you lose an entire, your whole memory or mo- much of your memory? Yes. Are you still the same person?
2: Yes. Well, some people have lost their long-term memory too. Yeah. They've lost both long-term and short-term, so they live in a present tense. And they don't recognize anyone. So those people are much more isolated and extreme than my character. My character would recognize um, someone from his past, and he knows uh, geography, he knows things that, that predate his illness. So he could go back to his childhood home and have no trouble making his way around the house. Mm-hmm. But if he meets somebody new or reads a newspaper, he's not going to remember
1: Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, that has gone. Then seventy seconds. Seventy later. seconds later.
2: Seventy seconds is not long. <laughs>
1: yes, no, it's not. And that's pretty scary. And so that presents a real problem for a love, a kind of love story, because Margot has um, has fallen in love. It, another side of this is she's fallen in love, but. What's love? We understand her love. but What's love for him? I mean, you know, I mean, how can he reciprocate in any way?
2: He can only reciprocate if he mistakes her for someone from his previous life Which he sort of does because it was a girl he knew in school There's just enough of a dim memory So he thinks he knows her and he sort of remembers that he liked her Mm -hmm. and so there's established a kind of dim connection now, I don't want to sound dramatic but as people get older with say an aging spouse, it's going to be a little bit like this relationship mm-hmm. where the, the other spouse may have terrible memory problems and can easily mix you up you know, with somebody else or call mm-hmm. you by the wrong name. But that doesn't really mean that you would love that person less.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It seems to me that there's a love we can have for people not not dependent upon their intellectual capacity right the way the way we feel for a beloved animal you know like a cat or a dog we really really love the animal and don't want to hurt it and want to take care of it and protect it so with an older person or an ailing person you can feel extreme love and protectiveness for this person even though the person might not be you know have his, his complete faculties
1: Yes, I mean, I don't know you. At one time, I, I was a, I was a Presbyterian minister in Omaha, Nebraska. Part of my life, uh, wow. and um, I had a couple, elderly couple, and the man had his faculties. Very sweet guy. I mean, he didn't physically wasn't all that great, but he had his mind. But his wife was in later stages of dementia, and I went through the pro- of Alzheimer's actually yeah. of putting her away. But he loved her. He loved her, although yeah, I, I yeah. could tell this was not the same woman. I could look at the pictures yeah, and see yeah. that he was loving her. Yeah, he
2: loved her anyway. My he father, and my, well, my father was like that with my mother. She was yeah, forgetful. Some, I don't think she ever forgot him, but she had short-term memory problems.
1: But in this case, the this is a like a this book is more of a, a mystery, mysterious sort of uh, dive into human. Um, emotion, consciousness, and and, uh, and maybe motive be, motivation because uh, Margot loves him, but also he is a, a case, uh, someone who she must deal with. And those are two entirely different
2: feelings. They're different, but they kind of they, over, m- overlap. Yeah, she's different. so fascinated by him that when they're walking together, when they're alone together, she's thinking of new tests and experiments. For him, partly because she does love him,
1: mm-hmm.
2: like if I'm at, if I'm attracted to someone, I may want to write about that person. Right, and that's been typical of poets and writers and and painters. Mm-hmm. You know, a painter might paint amuse. the same muse. The painter might paint the same female uh, archetype over and over again because he or she's fascinated. It, it it goes along with loving someone, that the extreme attentiveness. Mm-hmm. I meant it to be kind of ironic, but true to life, that she establishes a remarkable career right. through him. Right. And these things actually happen. Mm-hmm. They actually happen. People start writing about someone, well, let's say Eugene O'Neill, had a love-hate relationship with his father, who was Mm -hmm. a drinker and and, and, and sort of a... a
1: Yeah, but a a remarkable...
2: A remarkable man. Bigger than life. Yeah, bigger than life. And so he writes these series of plays in which this person comes alive and is Mm -hmm. horrible but wonderful. And so in the process, he becomes a Nobel Prize winner.
1: Right. But then he has to, and then he has to write a uh, one novel, which he says, "Please don't uh, perform this until we're all dead." <laughs> or uh, <at> right, <laughs> right. That's so true. And, uh, but,
2: That's so but, true. Uh,
1: That's the,
2: irony, the irony of life. Yeah. Well, you and I understand the absurdity of life. Yes. We know that life is absurd. We know that things happen to people who don't deserve them. Right. And things don't happen to people who deserve them. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes these things are, are so contrary. Mm-hmm. You know, would Eugene O'Neill rather have had an ordinary loving father? Yeah. Well think about it. Maybe not. Maybe yeah. he really wanted who knows? that. Yeah, because he got father. that amazing
1: life, that amazing family, that, that um uh, I mean it's it's also true that when someone is your muse you you um, you may over you know, you might even know you're overdoing it sometimes, like trying to... You exaggerate. He, yeah, exaggerate. He try, She tries to think, is he maybe remembering some of what's going yeah, on, yeah, does he yeah. have? And, um, well, we don't really know. I mean, that's a little bit of a mystery. And there is a little component of a... Of a uh, not a mystery, but a um, spooky kind of quality to the weird, this strange memory he has from his past of a girl right, that's image floating underwater, right? And yeah. that yeah. Because she has actually had some, like any many women, she's been, um, you know, her sexuality is, con- is confusing in this world of men, and she has an incident that um, uh, raises confusing questions for her about, you know, well, do I gain by a relationship with another man? I'm talking about the sexual relationship with another man. But then... She's also a little frightened, I think, of, yes. of this past. And But we yes. don't really ever know, do we? Yeah.
2: Not, not really. Um, the, Eli's memories are confused, but they are based on a reality. When he was quite young, something happened to a cousin of his, but he never really saw her. Right. You know, He's just imagining from what he's heard. And that is the way some of our memories are. Right. We hear a lot of things when we're young, so that we almost imagine that we see something. Right. And it's deep in our memories.
1: I I mean, I I think we all have that experience of thinking we were there, thinking it happened. Well, it's a wonderful book, The Man Without a Shadow. And uh, I probably should let you go because you have to go present this book to an audience. But uh, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you. I'm Sam Berry with Book Passage. And, of course, this is Joyce Carol Oates. And uh, you'll be hearing more from her shortly.
0: Hey listeners, Zach here to quickly remind you to check out bookpassage.com to order signed copies of bestsellers, learn more about our young adult writers, mystery writers, and travel writers and photographers' conferences, and see what we have in store for the months ahead. Book Passage has locations in Corte Madera and San Francisco in Northern California, and as the Bay Area's liveliest bookstore, we always have something new and exciting on our calendar. Visit bookpassage.com for more info. And now back to the show. We now move from Sam Barry's interview to Joyce Carol Oates as she takes the stage of Book Passage for her event on behalf of the Man Without a Shadow.
2: It's always a thrill to be here. It's such a beautiful bookstore and I'm just sort of generally in love with being in California (laughs) especially since my my home is back in, in the Northeast and it's always cold and gloomy and so forth so this this term I'm teaching at UC Berkeley last year I was teaching at Stanford and I have just such wonderful students I have 20 students and they're all so eager and they have a kind of tenderness and solicitude for one another we take up a, three stories each, each, uh, each workshop and they're so methodical and careful. I, I see that they've written like whole pages of comments on one another's work. Just, I just find it so touching. I think there's a special community of uh, maybe younger, emerging writers who feel um, concern and compassion for one another and they are such good readers of one another's work. We spend time, really um, careful, fastidious time going through classic work, like we'll be taking up a story of Ernest Hemingway's, the first, his first published story almost, which is called Indian Camp, we'll be taking up on Thursday, we'll just go through the story almost line by line because it's so beautifully written, sort of like something chiseled. So I think of literature, and then my own writing and is kind of embedded in it, I think of literature as a transcendental experience. Whatever our lives are, and sometimes we have really tragic and, and terrible things happen in our lives, there's always that possibility of rising to this other level of the impersonal, which is the transcendental and sort of taking um, what solace and spiritual significance we can take from this impersonal communal level. Even though it's a novel that I wrote, there are parts of it that when I read it, I get tears in my eyes because it has so much relevance to to actual life. So anyway, I'll start just reading in the beginning. Notes on Amnesia, Project EH. This is 1965 to 1996. Someone is keeping um, a journal, and it's called the Amnesia Journal. We don't know yet who she is. We're meeting her just at a time in her life when she's very accomplished. She's receiving lifetime achievement awards. So we're meeting her at a time when she's sort of near the end of her career, and then the the novel goes back to the beginning of her first meeting. Notes on Amnesia. She meets him, she falls in love, he forgets her. She meets him, she falls in love, he forgets her. She meets him, she falls in love, he forgets her. At last she says goodbye to him, 31 years after they first met. On his deathbed, he has forgotten her. She will confide in no one. On his deathbed, he didn't recognize me. She will confide in no one. On his deathbed, he didn't recognize me, but he spoke eagerly to me, as he'd always done. As if I were the one bringing him hope. Hello? Bravely and very publicly, she will acknowledge, he is my life. Without EH, my life would have been to no purpose. All that I have achieved as a scientist, the reason you have summoned me here to honor me this evening, is a consequence of EH in my life. I'm speaking the frankest truth as a scientist and as a woman. She speaks passionately, yet haltingly. She seems to be catching her breath, no longer reading from her prepared speech, but staring out into the audience with moist eyes, blinded by lights. She can't see individual faces, and so might imagine his face among them. In his name I accept this great honor in memory of Elihu Hoops. At last, to the vast relief of the audience, the speech given by this year's recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Award of the American Psychological Association has ended. (laughs) Applause is quick and scattered through the large amphitheater like small flags flapping in a weak, wayward wind. And then, as the recipient turns from the podium, uncertain and confused, in belated sympathy the applause gathers and builds into a wave, very loud, thunderous. She is startled. Almost for a moment, she is frightened. Are they mocking her? Do they know? Stepping blindly away from the podium, she stumbles. She is left behind the large and unwieldy trophy in the shape of a pyramid engraved with her name. Quickly, a young person comes to take the trophy for her and to study her. Professor Sharp, watch that step. And then we're going backward in time. Hello! Here's the first surprise. Life Hoops greets Margaret Sharp with such war- eager warmth. It's as if he has known her for years, as if there is a profound emotional attachment between them. The second surprise Elihu himself, who is nothing like Margaret Sharp has expected. It is 9.07 a.m., October 17, 1965, the single defining moment of Margaret Sharp's life as it will be the single defining moment of her career. Coincidentally, it's the eve of her 24th birthday, about which no one here knows, for Margaret has up- uprooted her Midwestern life and cast it among strangers when she is introduced by Professor Milton Ferris to the amnesiac patient, Elihu Hoops, as a student in Professor Ferris's neuropsychology laboratory at the university. Margaret is the youngest and most recent addition to the renowned Memory Laboratory. She has been accepted by Ferris as a first-year graduate student out of numerous applicants. She has dry mouth with anticipation. For a week, she has been reading material pertinent to Project EH. Yet the amnesiac A.H. is so friendly and so gentlemanly, she feels comforted at once. He is unexpectedly tall, at least 6 foot 2. He is straight back and vigorous. His skin exudes a warm glow and his eyes appear to be normal, though she knows his vision in his left eye is very poor. He is not at all the impaired individual she has expected to meet, who are to relearn a number of basic physical skills. Since a devastating injury to his brain just 15 months before, when he was 37. Margaret thinks that E.H. emanates an air of manly charisma, that mysterious quality to which we respond instinctively without being able to explain. He's even well dressed, in contrast to other patients at the Institute whom Margaret has glimpsed lolling about in hospital gowns or rumpled civilian wear. E.H. is a descendant of an old distinguished Philadelphia family named Hoops, one-time Quakers central to the Underground Railway in the years preceding the Civil War. He has a large extended family, but no wife, children, or parents. And he is something of an artist. Is it strange that Elijah Hoops is unmarried at nearly 40? Margaret wonders if this somewhat patrician individual has had a history of relationships with women, in which the women were found wanting and cast aside. Never guessing that his time for love, marriage, fathering children, would come so abruptly to an end. Camping alone on an island in Lake George, New York, the previous summer, E.H. was infected by a particularly virulent strain of herpes that usually manifests itself as a cold sore on the lip and fades. In E.H.'s case, the viral infection traveled along his optic nerve and into his brain, resulting in a prolonged high fever that ravaged his memory. Unfortunately, he delayed too long before calling for help. Like a morbidly curious scientist, he recorded his temperature in a notebook and pencil. The highest reading was 103.1 before he'd collapsed. This was ironic, a macho self-destructiveness. In the vast Adirondack region had been no first-rate hospital, no adequate medical treatment for such a rare and catastrophic infection. By the time the delirious and convulsing man had been brought by ambulance to the Albany Medical Center Hospital, Where emergency surgery was performed to reduce the swelling in his brain, it was too late. Something essential had been destroyed in his brain, and the damage appears to be irreversible. It's Milton Ferris's hypothesis that the damaged region is a small, seahorse-shaped structure called the hippocampus, located just above the brain stem and contiguous with the cerebral cortex, about which not much is yet known, but which seems to be essential for the consolidation and storage of memory. And so E.H. can form no new memories, and his memories of the past are erratic and uncertain. In clinical terms, he suffers from partial retrograde amnesia and total anterograde amnesia. Though he continues to test high on standard IQ tests, and despite his seemingly normal appearance and manner, he's incapable of remembering new information for more than 70 seconds, and often less. Seventy Seconds, A Nightmare The only consolation, Margaret thinks, is that E.H. is a highly congenial person and seems to thrive upon the intentions of strangers. The nature of affliction at least precludes mental anguish, she thinks. His memories of the distant past are sometimes vividly detailed. More recent memories are likely to be cloudy and indistinct. Both have been described as mildly dissociative as if belonging to another person not him. The subject is susceptible to moods but a very limited range. His affect is flattened as a caricature is flattened portrait of the complexity of human personality." And then there's a little description of all the things that he can remember because he's lost his, his uh, new memories, his short-term memory is, is uh, deteriorated, but he's got his old memories. So he was a person who in the past he um, had memory, statistics, historical dates, even song lyrics, comic strip characters, dialogue from movies and poems and Abraham Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address. He has curiosity for news and watches TV every day and reads newspapers, but does, doesn't have the ability to remember it. I might say lucky him <laughs> 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 the way the news is. And he's always been working on the on the crossword puzzle. Over a period of time, his ability to do the crossword puzzle will start to deteriorate because more uh, news and new things come into the crossword uh, puzzle that he that he won't know. He can recite me- multiplication tables and solve algebra problems without <coughs> using a pencil. He's uh, unusually intelligent. Margaret thinks it's difficult to feel for this healthy, saving man the visceral pity you might feel for a visibly handicapped person, for his loss is much more subtle. Though he's been told repeatedly that he has a severe neurological deficit, he doesn't seem to quite understand there's anything wrong with him. Why he feels compelled to keep a notebook, for instance, has begun to do after his illness. And Margaret starts to keep a notebook herself. Notes on amnesia, Project EH will run to the many notebooks eventually transcribed into a computer to be continued to the very day of E.H.'s death, We're sort of flashing forward to November 26, 1996, and beyond charting the na- fate of the amnesiac's posthumous brain after it has been removed very carefully from its skull. But on this morning in October 1965 in the University Neurological Institute, all of Margaret Sharp's life as a scientist slide before her, Introduced to E.H., she is dry-mouthed and tremulous as one who has been brought to the edge of a precipice to see a sight that dazzles her eyes. Will my life begin at last? My true life. Some of us can maybe look back to moments like this in our lives when we're about to take a big step and the the life that seems like our destiny is about to begin. I just have another little short section to read here. In science, it is understood that there are significant matters and there are trivial matters, so too in the matter of lives. It's a fact not generally or publicly acknowledged. We have lives that are true lives, and we have lives that are accidental lives. Perhaps it is rare that an individual discovers his true life at any age. Perhaps it's usually the case that an individual lives accidentally through an entire life. In terms of its consequence to what is called society or posterity, the accidental life is scarcely more than an addition of zeros. This is not to suggest that an accidental life is equivalent to a trivial life. Some lives may be enjoyable and fulfilling. We all want to love and to be loved and within our families and within a small circle of friends. We may feel ourselves cherished and exalted. But such lives pass away, leaving the larger world untouched. There is scarcely a ripple, there is no shadow. There will be no memory of the merely accidental. Margaret Sharp has come from a family of accidental lives in semi-rural north-central Michigan and in a region of accidental lives. Already as a child of 12, she determined that she would not live so uncalculated a life as the lives of those who surrounded her. And her way of discovering her true life would be through leaving her hometown and her family as soon as possible. She's always been curious in how the inquisitive. Her first favorite book was the illustrated Darwin for Beginners, which she discovered on a library shelf aged 11. Here was a book with a magical story, Evolution. And another favorite book of a child who was Marie Curie, A Woman in Physics. In high school, she'd read an article on B.F. Skinner and behaviorism that intrigued and excited her. She has always asked questions for which there are not ready answers. To be a scientist, Margaret thinks, is to know which questions to ask. For the great Darwin, she learned that the visible world is an accumulation of facts and conditions and results. To understand the world, you must reverse course to discover the processes by which these results come into being. By reversing the course of time, so to speak, you acquire mastery over time. You learn that the laws of nature are not mysteries but knowable as the exits on interstates. Is it ironic, uh, is it unjust ironic that catastrophe in one life, the ruin of EH, precipitates hope and anticipation in others? Milton Ferris's Memory Lab. The possibility of career advancement and success. Is the way of science, Margaret thinks, a scientist searches for her subject? as a predator searches for her prey.
0: Thank you for listening to Radio Book Passage. This program is produced by Elaine Petricelli, Bill Petricelli, and Zach Ruskin. Our thanks to Joyce Carol Oates. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Carol Oates thanks also to Sam Berry, who leads Book Passage's Path to Publishing program, where writers of any level can find the support and resources they need on the road to publication. To learn more, visit bookpassage.com ptp. To purchase The Man Without a Shadow, visit bookpassage.com. Join us next time when we speak with Luis Erdrich, author most recently of La Rose, As the great Neil Gaiman once said, a book is a dream that you hold in your hand.